three, two, one. Well, you asked me on here because you, I suppose you thought I was, I don't know, Yusuf Islam, that's like my name. And, and but also you, you may have obviously uh, referred to me as Cat Stevens. So I'm kind of both of those people in a way. You know, I was born Stephen Dimitri Georgia. So that you can see that immediately my identity issue <laughs> was quite, quite unclear in the beginning. Well, I've kind of made peace, you know, with my past. You know, there was a long period where I sort of rejected everything, you know, because I'd found what I was looking for, which was actually Islam. It wasn't Islam, actually, it was, it was God, you know, through Islam. And so therefore, you know, I, I kind of did the natural thing. I was zealous and I had a lot of baggage and, and people wanted me to keep on carrying that baggage. And I, I decided, no, this is time for me to be who I am. I discovered who I, you know, who I was when I was reading the Quran. I came across the, the chapter of Joseph and suddenly I said, that's me. That's me. The journey of Joseph or Yusuf in the Quran is of a man turned prophet who evolved his identities as a protection and to find himself and God. The story begins with an attempted murder by his jealous brothers, but Joseph survives escapes, and is presumed dead by his family. Many years later, they cross paths again, and the brothers don't even know who he is. And it was Joseph's story of being concealed through different identities and then not being recognized by his brothers that affirmed to Kat that he had found his spiritual home as Yusuf. Uh, I always loved the name Joseph anyway, but, but the story just, you know, was an epitome of what my history was and how I'd evolved. So, you know, coming to peace with uh, with Cat, yeah, no problem. You know, he's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, he's written some great songs, you know, so I think <laughs> that I'm, I'm very lucky to have inherited. <laughs> no, it's me, you know, so I'm still singing and I'm writing. <laughs> now I, I am in the phase of trying to make sure that people understand that whatever my soul and my intentions and my goals and hopes and dreams were, you know, they were really realized with um, coming to Islam. And so therefore I'm the same person, but I've just been revealed a little bit more, you know, so you can see me better. That's the journey, isn't it? Finding different ways and avenues to be revealed a little bit more. And it's the commitment to the journey of knowing yourself that along the way we find ourselves creating, making things, telling stories through all different mediums. And sometimes that process results in something lasting, something that affects others deeply. And we call that art. Art is a way to communicate and connect with our own intimate knowledge. And for some people, when their art takes off with a life of its own, they get thrust into the frothy and highly contentious world we call popular culture. Pop culture kind of says, hey, I don't belong to this party. I am me. And this is my song. I go for the pop thing more because to me, that's, that's, that's the, the chance for somebody to express themselves beyond the public arena as, as it's perceived to be or should be. So that's why I stick in the um, popular, you know, art arena where the spirit and, and, and aesthetics speak louder to us. There's one song, for instance, called, you know, I Wish I Wish. And I wish I knew, I wish I knew what makes me, me, what makes you, you. It's just another point of view, a state of mind I'm going through. So what I see is never true. You know, that was it. Searching for the truth and for stability in oneself and in one's spirit. That was the big journey. The big journey. The one we are all on. Throughout this experience of rep, journey has been the common denominator. And what is a journey but a series of surprises, challenges, and unexpected wonders? Journeys require that we reach down into ourselves and connect with our bravest parts, the ones down at that soul level. And that's why this chapter of Rep will feel a little different. 
Each one has, but this one in particular feels a little extra different. And it begins with an intention to focus on how each artist brings their soul into their work while also protecting their rawest self, their most authentic self, from the rough turmoil of the world of pop culture. For the next of our three Ps, I want to hand you the next tool we'll be using to decode our own stories. The lens of pop culture as a way to see ourselves. It's always more powerful when we decode a story for ourselves. And in this instance, we have a few story guides to help us as they speak about their approaches to the journey, the one we are all on individually and together. At your service and iHeartMedia present Rep, Chapter 8, Pop Culture. My full name is Yunalis Matzurai, and who am I? I am a singer-songwriter from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and uh, I'm based in LA, and I've been here for 10 years, and yeah, I'm still making music, woo! Also 10 years ago is when I came across a video on YouTube of a hijabi singing a cover of a Frank Ocean song, and my jaw had just completely dropped. It was a cappella, layers of her voice upon her voice, and it was Yuna in her new LA apartment. And then one day in October 2015, she had commented on an Instagram post of mine, and I freaked out, ran over to her page, saw that she was on tour, and somehow that same day, she was performing not 15 minutes away from my house in Maryland. I took my mom as my date, and me and Yuna's friendship began as fate. And now we're having this conversation in LA. Thank you so much. I feel like I was very, very lucky to come out here and had meetings with all these labels and not once they mentioned about how different I look, you know. They would obviously acknowledge like the fact that, oh, she's unique. Oh, that's so cool. She's Muslim and she plays music. But not once they tried to change me or like refer anything negative to the fact that I was, you know, me. So, but in Malaysia, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> what was weird. the Malaysian experience? Oh, wow. The first time I took up a meeting with a the label, they told me to, you know, like take my scarf off. Like, in the yes. Muslim majority country? Yes. <laughs> this was 15 years ago. Why though? What because was the it wasn't cool. You know, like it was, you never see, we call hijabis tudong girl. You know, you, you don't see tudong girls on TV singing pop songs. It was better if you let your hair out and wear makeup and wearing something sexy on stage. And that was like the norm in the industry. And I was like, no, I want to be a rock star. You know, yeah. like, I was like, I was a rock chick. I want to play the guitar and have my scarf on. So I was like, okay, well, this is not for me. But there were like a bunch of times, like even at photo shoots, you know, oh, we need to show your neck because this magazine company, they have set a standard that not allowing a hijabi to be on the cover. But they're making an exception for you, Yuna. But you just have to show like a little bit of your shoulders or like your collarbone. And at the time, I wasn't comfortable doing that. And I'm like, so weird, you know? What does that tell you about how we perceive ourselves and how we perceive each other? I mean, I don't know. I guess, does it matter though? Because like at the end of the day, it's just like testing you whether you have the guts to be yourself because of course you see you were shocked to know that oh in Malaysia that this happened to you now you know like I was shocked but not so shocked you know I wasn't like oh my gosh how can you say this or like do this to me treat me this way but it was kind of like expected I was like hmm okay well you don't get it it's fine because most people are so scared of accepting something different. You know, they don't want to risk. But when I moved out here, music is 
you know, speaks louder than image and people appreciate talent here in the US or like the the industry no matter what you want to say about it anything goes so you'll find your people that's what i believed when i came out here it was just like well once i open my mouth once i get on that stage and open my mouth and play my guitar they'll get it i'd like you to meet may kalamawi some of you may already know her She's an actress who is currently playing the role of Dina in Hulu and A24's Rami. She also plays Layla in Disney Plus and Marvel's Moon Knight. I always wanted to act. I wanted to express in some way. And I felt like when I watch videos of myself, I was really weird. I'm, I'm always like, Dad, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing with my face? What? No one asked me to do these moves. And like, I'm just... And watch how free I was then. And around 10 years old, May moved from Bahrain, where she was born and raised, to Houston, Texas. I was really afraid of people knowing I was Muslim and Arab. My mom is Palestinian and my dad is Egyptian. I would hear my dad sometimes making jokes. His name is Muhammad. Like, if he should change his name when he gets the citizenship, if it should be Mo. If it, and, but I naturally was... Nervous. I remember being at school and, and always sweating if I felt like a conversation was going towards someone asking me where I'm from or my religion or what. And I was afraid that if I said Muslim, they wouldn't want to be my friend. And then if I met someone who physically looked like they were not from the States, I'd want to connect. The fear young people carried and still carry around their friends finding out if they're Muslim or Arab and the fear children may have of Muslims, Arabs, or those who look the part, proves that even when we aren't able to put feelings to words, there is power in our stories. And because the stories we've engaged with from a young age can be so weighted, they can also be the most challenging to revisit and therefore express. This is true of the journey of Kat to Yusuf. When you come to my, my particular story, you know, then, then you'll see that I was a pretty shy person. I, I, I was kind of, the only way I could communicate was through art and then through music. That's how I spoke to the world. And the, the only way I could speak. And so you'll hear my voice sort of there and then I'm kind of changing around a little bit because, oh, that wasn't a hit, so maybe I'll do something else. I mean, lots of changes go on. You're trying to trying to be what people want, especially in the pop business. You know, you they want you to be who they want you to be, and the managers are doing the same. So everything is kind of working against your natural vocation and being you. Now today, I feel I've I've made peace with a lot of the raw edges of my past, and I can accept them, and in fact celebrate some of them because, well, most of them actually, because um, they're all there in my songs. Is there a specific part of your story in your past that you think about when you refer to it in the way that you just did? I don't think I ever grew beyond 17, actually. That's what I think. <laughs> I got stuck in 17. Um, no, perhaps the first time I really looked at myself was after I had a, a serious illness, um, TB. You know, and in fact, I was taken out of the pop business and suddenly I was in hospital and I was looking at the walls you know, and looking at the mirror and seeing, well, who is this guy and where am I going? That was probably the first time I started looking. And then you find that your identity is not firm. You know, you change, grow a beard, you know, suddenly you're someone else, almost. <laughs> so identity is continuously changing, but not your soul, because it's something to do with destiny. When you're looking for your identity, you're really looking for your destiny. And along with that comes purpose. So you're looking for your purpose, you're looking for your identity, you're looking for destiny. I was very inspired by filmmakers who are exploring a young person's perspective, wrestling with their identity their wants and needs with the wants and needs of the people around them and specifically their family. And those were the filmmakers that had such an influence on me and I felt like I, I have my version of that story to share. 
This is Minhal Baig. I first came across her work when I found out she was a writer on one of my favorite animations, Netflix's BoJack Horseman. She later became a writer on the first season of Rami. And when Apple TV Plus launched, Minhal's feature film Hala was among their first offerings. It's a coming-of-age story about a young Muslim-American woman inspired by Minhal herself. I really didn't feel comfortable even writing it until my father passed away. That was a turning point for me because I realized life is very short. And my father, as he was getting sicker and sort of was seeing the end of his life kind of unfolding in front of him, had regrets about things that he hadn't done, things that he still wanted to do. And as I was talking to him, I was also feeling that I'm also not really doing what I'm meant to do. I'm not being honest with myself. I'm trying to live a safer, more secure, stable existence because I desire safety, you know, because I've had I've experienced so much instability in my life and talking to my dad, I realized I don't want to have those regrets. So, after he passed away, it was a little bit like something opened up inside of me where I had all this, a well of emotion and these experiences that were kind of living and I was sitting with by myself for a long time. And it came out very quickly in the form of like a 200 page screenplay over a winter break at my family's home in the aftermath of my dad's passing kind of like something changed where I felt like, oh, I don't have time anymore. And I, I don't, I don't want to have a life full of regrets of things that I wanted to do and didn't have the courage to do. Rep. Before Yuna pursued music as a career, she was a law student in Malaysia. It was during this time she felt like she was sacrificing her creative side. Until one day, she felt compelled to buy a guitar. The nearest town to her university was two hours away, so she got on a bus, bought the guitar, and began practicing in her dorm room. I used to be super active with singing and dancing as a kid. That's how it started. I was just like, okay, well, I need to reconnect with this musical Yuna, this creative Yuna. And I knew I, was, I wasn't going to drop out, you know, so I was going to like finish this and graduate and everything. So my final year was when I started performing my own songs. You know, this was when I released some music on MySpace. I built a fan base, which is really cool. Maybe like 50 people became like 5,000 people. Mm. 5,000 people became like 50,000 people. My goal has always been like, I want to go to America. I want to go overseas and try and find a label who's going to sign me. That that was always like, you know, in the back of my head, like I feel like I can really do this. And so Yuna moved to Los Angeles to pursue her American dream. There are no rules. It's a free country. You can do whatever you want, which is great. But at the same time, it's so scary. It's a cowboy land. You know, it's a wild, wild west. If you're making music or if you are making films, like, this is the place to be. That was what I understood, you know, like growing up. But at the same time, you know, I feel like, well, that's going to be tricky because I'm Muslim (laughs) and I wear the hijab and I don't know where I can place myself in the industry as well, because I was trying to be positive about everything, you know, and uh, I well, I am positive, uh, positive about things. So I don't really care about like, oh, when people tell me, you know, you shouldn't go, people hate Muslims in America, like after 9-11, you know, it's going to be so difficult living over there. Who was telling you that? Oh, this is like friends and family. They're like, oh, you're crazy trying to do this. Yeah, you're crazy trying to move to the U.S. and trying to be an artist because who's going to listen to you? You wear the hijab and you're very open. That's the the main thing about my whole thing is like, yeah, I'm very open about 
the fact that I wear the hijab and I'm Muslim, you know, so it's just, to me, it's like normal. It's like, I'm just a normal girl. But yeah, I think that was like the story that I got. But at the same time, the dream is bigger than the fear, you know, so I felt like, okay, well, I have to try this and just go and see for myself and understand the story myself or write the story myself. May also reconnected with the story of her younger self who loved to perform for the camera. After living in Houston, she moved back to Bahrain and then back to the United States as an adult to pursue acting. And as an Arab and Muslim woman, her experience in the entertainment industry began with limiting roles. The first couple roles I got were more like really dramatic. I was part of a family where these soldiers were invading in Sadr City or, you know, like it was like high stakes situations. I realized I wasn't fulfilled by them. What was it about that that didn't fulfill? Because I was like, there's so many sides to to Arabs. I don't want to just show the pain or the the problems. I didn't grow up that way. I grew up in the Middle East and I had a really wonderful life. I do think these stories need to be told so that people are more aware. But also, I'm like, let the world see us as people that they relate to as well. So that when they see us in those situations, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe that that could be me, as opposed to just seeing this other, and you're like, oh yeah, they, that's like their life, that's how they live. And after a few roles, I remember telling my agent, I was like, I'm not gonna do this anymore, and please don't send me out to them. I knew that I might've had to go in because I speak Arabic. Like even Madam Secretary, I played a woman who her kid got hit by the car. It, it's just all really dramatic. And I'm like, you're bringing out these characters that play the drama. And I think that I'm not someone who's grown up very political. So I won't always know why this doesn't feel right. When I sit with some of my friends who are like so well read about the topic, they'll be like, well, yeah, it's because this is how people, you felt, you didn't feel truth. Like something feels robbed and you constantly being represented this way. Representation acts as a mirror into imagining the best versions of ourselves, the strongest version of ourselves, the future version of ourselves. But it also acts as a window. And that window allows us to see beyond ourselves, beyond the communities that we are so familiar with, that we understand so deeply, so that other people can get a look in. And actually, it builds empathy. We know this from research, that being able to peer into that window, be invited in, builds so much empathy. That's Erige Mikati. She's the managing director of Culture Change at Pillars Fund, an organization that provides financial and professional support with the intention to amplify Muslim stories and push back against harmful narratives. And here is Kashif Sheikh. He's the co-founder and president of Pillars. Really how Pillars started in 2010 was uh, a group of people wanting to find more effective ways to support Muslim communities in the United States. So we really were trying to kind of build a new type of institution that was really representative of a new generation of Muslims in the United States. You know, we were working on a project in which we were soliciting a lot of different scripts from, you know, Muslim creators. And one sort of observation that Arij and I had or she brought to me was that a lot of a lot of the scripts were around national security a lot of the scripts were around sort of that the victim mindset or sort of like sort of putting us in the same box that we've been trying to fight so to put it in perspective this project allowed us to seek out scripts from Muslims across America, anyone who identified as Muslim and we very explicitly shared with them this is your playground you can talk like, anything you want. Your story doesn't even have to have Muslims in it or be about Muslims. You can write about anything you want. And we received over 220 scripts and I started to notice this trend. I pulled out the log lines and separated out all the log lines that were about terror and national security. It was over 80% of those 220 scripts. And it broke my heart. Not only because, you know, this was 
a, a shocking example of how internalized our own Islamophobia is, but also because it was such an indictment of the system that these artists are creating in, that they felt that even in a room where it was Muslim eyes on Muslim scripts, and we were saying like, we're gonna pick the best scripts, like that, it's it's in our hands. Like I, I am going to say which ones I like the best, that they still felt the only thing that I have worth saying and the, the most important and valuable thing that I have worth saying is I am not a terrorist. And I am just consistently brokenhearted that we are still in a place where we are defining ourselves by what we are not in defense mode rather than being able to share the plurality and abundance of what we are. I really hope that we get to a place where we can stop saying, I'm not this, I am not that, and can start saying like, but this is what I am. And I really think that will heal us in a way that we are not there yet, but I can see glimmers of it. When I first watched the show Rami, a story about an Egyptian-American family in New Jersey where both Rami and his sister Dina are going through struggles on their spiritual journeys. I had big feelings. Oh my gosh, is this what representation feels like? Because it feels like I'm being spied on. (laughs) That someone has come in and peered into my home life and then broadcast. Like, I feel like I'm gonna get in trouble because (laughs) someone has told all my secrets. That's really what it felt like. And it was such a huge unlock for me because it was only recently that I actually knew what that level of representation felt like. Wow, well, thanks for that. I love that you felt that when you watched it because I was in it. So I couldn't have that same response because naturally when I when I watch it, I, I'm probably watching different things. When Rami came along, it was like, in many ways I had trouble with that role because she's like not suffering. I mean, she's suffering. And, and like, I could relate to that from a female perspective, especially having an older brother, but it's not that dramatic. It's like not a survival story. A second season of Rami was personal because at the time I was experiencing alopecia and he was like, what if we just use that? And I was like, sure. I remember meditating and being like, I never want to try to hide the things I'm ashamed of. I want to, I want to show them because I know there's other people experiencing this and We can all go through it together. I've realized after Rami, I was like, oh, this is my service. Like what I'm doing is all in service. Sharing stories is a form of service. And May was of service by exposing parts of her identity that she struggled with herself, and in turn, providing more nuanced representation for people who don't usually see themselves on screen. Those moments of seeing yourself represented can completely shift how you view yourself and engage with your own story. And that was my experience when I bought a ticket at my favorite local movie theater in Brooklyn to watch Min Hall's film, Hela. I remember in my head seeing like a mother and a daughter kind of like holding hands in the movie theater. And... um. I like I could tell like it was almost like the film was giving them language for a conversation they were waiting to have. I think the film touches on a lot of experiences that American Muslims have that they can't openly talk about because there's fear and there's a stigma so there's a shame and a guilt about not only the experiences you have but also your feelings about those experiences. So there's, and and I think, frankly, also just being a child of, you know, for me, it was child of immigrant parents who have a different relationship to their emotions than I do. So a couple of my friends, I'm thinking specifically about one person, actually, she said that she shared the film with her parents because down the road, she wants to be able to talk to them about her queerness. And she said, I don't even know where to begin to discuss it if we don't even have the conversation before that. Like the film is not, it's not a, it's not about queerness, but it is about in some, to some degree about sexuality and women's agency. And she felt 
that this was like step one of that of that process of having that a larger conversation about queerness and desire and what kind of relationships she wants to have in her life. When Minhal's film was first released, we had several conversations about how difficult it was to put out such a personal story and what that meant for her own familial relationships. And while her mom and siblings didn't originally watch the film, she often thought about her father. It's tragic because I think my dad would have actually really enjoyed the movie. And it's super painful to wrestle with that because he loved movies. And I felt like he he and I had that kind of connection over art. And though the subject matter of the film would have still been, you know, it would it wouldn't have been easy for him to like swallow it and like digest it. I do think that he would appreciate it as a work of art. Uh, Being a singer-songwriter, I always tell myself, you know, like, I have to write about things that I know. I know that if I tell this story, I know that people will listen to it and they'll be able to connect to that story. They'll, They'll be able to relate to it, you know, so hopefully this will help them go through anything difficult in their lives, you know, any challenges that they might be like going through right now and to listen to my my songs and they'll be like oh you know like oh okay you know went through that as well and she survived surviving our journeys is what helped me forge an immediate connection with yuna minhal and so many other people who have also committed to creating art from a place of getting to know one's self when the trailer to minhal's film hala first came out It was heavily misconstrued by people on the internet. A movie trailer is a marketing tool designed to sell a film in three minutes or less. They're rarely, if ever, created and cut by the director themselves. When Apple released the trailer for Hela, it focused more on the main character's relationship with a love interest who happened to be a white guy at school. But the main dramatic relationship the film was actually about was the bond between Hala and her mother. Nevertheless, many Muslims who only watched the trailer were immediately triggered by what looked to be yet another white savior storyline. Some people insisted on sharing their critiques before they had a chance to find out what the film was really about. You know, as the internet does. And Minhal and I connected because she knew I was also familiar with my story being misrepresented and, in turn, other Muslims reacting to me from a place of their own trauma. In general, the American Muslim community has a deep distrust of media because of the vilification and all of the stereotypes in Hollywood films and television about who we are and not getting an opportunity to share from our perspective what our lives are and our experiences and our feelings. And so I thought because of the deep distrust that perhaps we could overcome the trailer. <laughs> but but I, I think that's just human, it's human nature. You know, there's so many stories. It's it's just in American media in general too. Like I watch something and I feel like, okay, I think I understand what's going on. And then I read something else from a different source that challenges what I just learned. And it presents a totally different side to the story. I think that we're in a time now where, you know, media consumption itself, it is like watching a lot of trailers for things that you don't have any context for, drawing conclusions off those trailers, making decisions, political decisions, life decisions based off of that, and not really having a full picture. Pillars Fund works to quantify how and why we have reached this place where there is a disruptive amount of distrust of what we call the media and how our cultural beliefs and biases show up in the messages broadcast both intentionally 
and unintentionally. Pillars was instrumental in a recent study called Missing and Misaligned, the reality of Muslims in popular global movies. So when we see, for example, that only a quarter of all Muslim characters on screen in our study were women, and that the majority of those women were in relation to the men in their lives. They're either like wives or mothers in the film, and that's really their entire identity. Is it really a surprise that then we see that reflected in the news and in journalism? Um, as, As journalists, you know, often try to be unbiased, but we know that that's just not the case. They're being socialized too. When we see, for example, that Muslim characters were depicted as either the victim of, a, of violence or the perpetrator of violence, is it really a surprise that when a Muslim person is, uh, you know, a perpetrator of a crime, that that Muslim happens to just be in the title of a, a news story? It's not a coincidence because this fiction then becomes quote-unquote fact to people, even if it's not. And that has real consequences of getting us to a place where not only did Donald Trump instate a Muslim ban, three Americans approved of it. And I think that's because these fictional stories just really are reinforced throughout uh, the way that even journalists tell us about what's actually factually happening in the world always said that you don't just wake up hating Muslims. These are really intentional messages that have been sort of put out into the world. When Cat Stevens became Yusuf Islam, he shocked the world. People were mad that he dared to change his name and evolve into a newly revealed version of himself. Then there was also the Islamophobia he experienced, in turn, because of his choice to be Muslim. Becoming Yusuf Islam was an incredibly difficult and trying test for him, and it required that he fully commit to himself and his personal journey when the press and the media started having fun on, you know, at my expense, I was deadly serious about this is my life, this is my search, this is my journey, this is me. You know, they, they started making fun because they didn't know, they didn't understand, and they had no, no knowledge at all. So, so therefore, you know, it's ve- it was a very difficult beginning, and it's difficult to go into right now, but you can tell that what, the moment the Iranian revolution happened, it was like, no go anymore. This was like, your religion is out. And, you know, that's the judgment they made based on the Iranian revolution and the whole of the media bought into that. It was so tough. Yusuf found himself intensely caught in the dynamics of the three Ps on both a personal level and as a public figure. Well, I realized that, you know, in order to to take hold of the narrative, you must continue making the art. It's got to be real. It's got to be now. So becoming engaged is very important and also becoming, being available to speak to. Because I was was hiding for a lot of the time because I, I wasn't quite sure, apart from my music, you know, what, um, what to say. I could say it very easily in my music, but, you know, being stuck there in front of a journalist and having to sort of come up with interesting things to talk about, it was just a, a struggle for me. For a long time, I couldn't do that. And for a long time, when I became a Muslim, I didn't even bother. I said, you know what? You know what? I'm through with you. They, they said, well, I'm through with you. I said, fine, that's great. But no, they kept on writing nasty things. So I thought, ah, and I started you know, kind of a little bit of sparring um, wasn't good. wasn't good because I, I, went, I never went to journalist school. So therefore, I, I fell through a few traps. So all this stuff going on, you have to be active. You have to be present. You have to be taking charge of not just the narrative, but the screen. And that's where we've got to go. And that's what, what everybody is, is influenced by, you know, apart from... Um, everything else, including trying to make a living. It's about broadcasting the truth truth. 
amplifying those stories, like Arij focuses on at Pillars Fund. What we want to ensure is that we are really keying in on dignified portrayals of Muslims. We're not as interested necessarily in positive portrayals or an after-school special, but we want dignified, nuanced portrayals that will then actually shift the culture. So the idea is if we tell the right stories, and the right stories is just the truth, if we tell the truth about our communities, that will shift the current to one that allows our organizations to swim with it rather than so hard against it. Shifting culture, as Arij just mentioned, leads to shifting public opinion. And as Congresswoman Ilhan Omar told us earlier in Rep, pop culture and public opinion in turn influence the work our politicians do on our behalf. And if that is how power shows up in our stories, then it works in our favor to live in our own truth-truth, so that the stories we contribute to culture are making changes based on who we are authentically. And it's within this space of truth that Minhal has found a new well of courage to tell even more expansive and soulful stories. Well... We didn't talk about this in a previous conversation, so perhaps this will be a revelation now. But I've, over the course of many years, felt certain things that I didn't even know how to put words to because as I, I don't, I didn't quite understand them. And recently, I've been thinking about storytelling as a way to explore and excavate those parts of myself. I'm interested in all sorts, parts of identity. There's sexuality for me that is actually really sort of growing in interest as a subject because I feel like it's something that I don't, I have for a very long time held at arm's length because it felt like I'm already at too many intersections of identities being Muslim, being South Asian, being a woman, being the child of immigrants, that adding another intersection was, it was as if I was making my life harder. So to be as frank as I can, it's, I'm interested in exploring sexuality and specifically queerness because it's something that I feel like I've had at arm's length for a long time. And it's always been there. It's been there for a very long time, but it's always, you know, the way that I've approached my life has been, I need to be practical. I need to survive. And in the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Exploring queerness was not one of those things because it didn't seem to serve a purpose. You know, it was like, what is the purpose of this? Why? And recently in the work that I'm doing, I'm realizing that I've been, I've had this part of myself sort of secret because again, it's adding another intersection and also it complicates my life in a way that the type A overachiever wasn't expecting. Like I think that I had a, a life plan for myself and it was this, this, and this. And then this has come out of hibernation and I don't want to just continue to suppress it. I want to explore it in my work and I want to be honest. I want to be very personal about it. And I know that it's, it's a very painful thing to do in artwork because I've gone through it before. The relationship with storytelling has changed in the sense that I feel that I can explore different kinds of stories. Thank you for sharing that with me. I didn't know that I was going to share it, but I, I felt like it was, if we're talking about representation, this is something that I also don't see represented very much, you know? Rep. 
One of the biggest challenges I continue to have in this reporting is facing the misrepresentation that happens right within the communities I grew up in. The truth is, because of the trauma American Muslims have experienced, many people have picked up the same tactics as the government who's surveilling us. Muslims surveil and try to control other Muslims too, whether it's on how someone chooses to dress, who they choose to love, how they choose to practice their faith. Even the most private, personal choices can be up for debate and discussion. So I've struggled a lot with this. Do I keep looking for who is at fault? Or do I just get really honest with myself about what I actually believe in? The stories that feel true to me and how I want to continue my own relationship with what it means to rep. That is why I call this a spiritual journey. So I shared this with Yusuf, a fellow soul explorer and storyteller. And, and you know, everybody's got that um, opportunity to, you know, within themselves. And, and the religion, as you said, can sometimes separate us from the essence of what that religion actually is, you know, what it's supposed to be doing. You know, when, you, when you've got the commandment, the first commandment, you know, which is, you know, thou sh- in, in the Bible, thou shalt take no other gods beside me. Well, well that's it. Uh, but then you get all sorts of th- other things happening in between, you know. So then the priest will tell you, well, I'm the one to t- tell you exactly how God wants you to be. And then you've got the imams as well doing the same thing. You've got rabbis doing the same thing. You've got to make sure that you hold on to that voice that clear voice of God that we all have within us and we just have, you know, have hidden it or it's become cluttered uh, through the noise of, of just being in this modern world and, and trying to listen to that. Why people now are going into mindfulness, you know, they're trying to seek out that voice. So knowledge can really help us get through these things, um, whatever it is in your bodily, you know, challenges and spiritual challenges. Just, just don't see anything other than knowledge as being the key to, to our solutions. What advice do you have for people who want to commit to a path of knowledge and knowledge of self, but don't know where to begin? Uh, go listen to a Cat Stevens record. That's what I would say. <laughs> I mean, this is just a flippant <laughs> remark. But actually, there is a thread and a, and a thread throughout those songs which are wild world you know um you know on the road to find out peace train my goodness you know i mean everything is is there and there's always someone to connect to so you know whatever you respond to and whoever wakes you up to that calling of knowing who you are and wanting to to be that person then um or to be in a better position um, now than you were before then you should go there Go there. For May, she discovered pieces of herself when she transformed into her own Marvel superhero, the character Leila in Moon Knight. I started very intimidated, and as I moved along, I started to feel my power more as a woman. It goes back to listening to our intuition as well. That's been a lot of my work, is just trusting myself more, and I felt like that's a lot of what the character was given, and in a way she was given, like, this opportunity to really make a difference at a bigger scale. And it's about how she's going to trust herself to do it. And I feel like I was left with that, in a way. felt like as I moved along, I found more confidence. I don't even know where it came from, but I just allowed that to move through me. I just took it as a gift. I was like, okay, God, like, thank you for this. And and I feel like that ended up changing me as a person. And I really felt like by the end of it, I developed my own wings. May developed wings the same way her character Leila did. Her superhero outfit is Egyptian-inspired, designed in white and gold, and it boasts large, layered golden wings. Leila's hair, like May, bounces her natural curls. I didn't realize how many people could experience their lives changing through a story. Mm-hmm. Like the number of women who send me photos of their curly hair or that they're accepting that in themselves. 
I was just like, wow, I didn't think the hair would offer a sense of freedom for you. And I think at the end of the day, we get trapped by anything that we feel won't help us be accepted. It becomes like something limiting or because we want to change it. But when you find that acceptance within you from something that you've seen in a story, I believe it it frees you. For some people, it's just a Marvel show. But for me, I was like, whoa, that changed my life. (laughs) There's a scene at the end of Moon Knight where a young Egyptian girl sees Layla in her big wings and asks her, Inti superhero Masriya? Are you an Egyptian superhero? And it hit me how far we've come, even how far Disney has come, from an oppressed Princess Jasmine from the mystical land of Agrabah to a Muslim Egyptian superhero or Ms. Marvel, a Muslim Pakistani American superhero. It is in the pursuit of our own dreams that we leave behind open doors for others to walk through. So wherever you are in that process, this is just a reminder to keep going. When I was younger, right, like the dream would be like, oh, I want to win a Grammy, you know. But like I said, after a few years, you learn that even if you don't have that, doesn't mean that you failed. I have 115 songs that I've released in the last like 10 years or so. So I'm like, wow, okay, I don't need a Grammy to tell me that, you know, I've done a great job. This is the American dream that I I wanted, you know, like I wanted to be able to make the music that I love. That's it. That's all. So whatever that happens after that, like getting fans or getting, you know, being able to tour and perform and meeting amazing musicians, amazing producers, amazing artists. That's all like a bonus to me, you know, so, yeah. See me. I regularly listen to the music Yuna made years ago, and it still connects me to myself, to her, and to others. Music has a way of revisiting us as we are evolving. Lyrics or notes can hit you a little differently depending on where you are in your story and how the art wants to connect with you. And sometimes that connection can be so transformative that it actually creates relationships. Like Kat and Yusuf's music did for me at my first TV job. When I was in my first couple of years of journalism school, I had gotten this internship at our local CBS television station. And there was a woman, this producer, who just wasn't the friendliest And I don't remember exactly how we got into it. She brought you up. And then I ended up sharing with her a story that my dad and my mom would always tell me growing up, which is that when I was a baby, my first concert was your concert. And they had taken me when I was a baby. And while you were performing, they handed me to you (laughs) on the stage. So like you carried me as a baby. My goodness. <laughs> Don't ask me to do that now. <laughs> and my dad insists there's a photo of this somewhere, but I haven't seen it yet. But anyway, so the producer, I tell her the story and her entire demeanor just shifts because you were her favorite artist. And immediately after I shared that story, she switched from calling you Cat to Yusuf. Like we, there was this like insider knowledge And I realized that it was music, and in that moment specifically yours, that was our least common denominator. Because it didn't matter that you had become Muslim regardless of if she had any feelings towards Muslims in general. But to you, you you were just her favorite artist and you had changed her life. And it reminded me of the humanity that we experience when you really know people and what you may have in common with them. And so 
that moment of us connecting over your music and what you as a person meant to her and what you as a person meant to me just completely changed our relationship for the better. Well, you know, that, that's an amazing story. And, and to be honest, that, that that's the reason why I came back to pick up the guitar again, um, is to make that reconnection with the humanity that we all share, you know, regardless of religion, mm. et cetera, et cetera. I was struggling with my persona because my persona was pretty elevated, you know, in the world. And, you know, yet at the same time, I always reserved a very special place within my life for my soul. I never sold my soul. At the same time, I didn't know who I was. So now, now I find out who I was, who I am, sorry. Um, I've written a song about it. It's called On the Road to Find Out. In the end, I'll know, on the way, I wonder. You know, and in the end, I say, uh, the answer lies within, so why not take a look? You know, kick out the devil's sin and pick up a good book. I mean, it's so simple, and in a way, that's, that's what the story of how I dealt with it. Yusuf decoded his story through creating music. Same with Yuna. Minhal through film, and May through television. And the expressions of their stories are not limited to those mediums. These just happen to be the ones that entered our realm of pop culture and have influenced and inspired. I thought a lot about how to approach this chapter. I thought it would include more pointing out of stereotypes and tropes. But I was so inspired by the question Arij and Kashif presented earlier. Is this a story of who I am or who I am not? And the stories each of our guides in this chapter shared with all of us is a story of who they are and how there are infinite tools and approaches to building relationships with our truths. As powerful as harmful and misrepresentative stories have been, an even stronger power is stepping outside of the stories that have been projected onto you and stepping into a story authored by you. And while this sounds simple, it isn't easy. At least, it hasn't been for me. To step into my story has demanded of me that I let go of controlling my own narrative and to fully trust in the process of meeting my own truth. And I've just opened up about this to Yusuf. Part of that trust is letting go of control yeah. and trusting that it'll all work out anyway. Yeah, it's a, it's a big one. It's a big one. And, you know, and, and that's where you can see the, um, the examples. Like, for instance, going back to the story of Abraham, when Abraham submitted his will to God to sacrifice his son, I mean, that was, can you believe, you know, this is his son. And then he trusts. And just at that moment when he's about to bring the knife down, then God reveals a ransom of a ram, a ram to take the place of his son. Oh my God, oh my God. You know, that's trust, that's trust. Trust is terrifying. But it's, yeah, and, but it's a life-saving component of our lives. Yeah. Are there any words that you would like to pass on to young people on the journey of self-evolution, on the journey of creating art, and on the journey of building trust? Oh baby, baby, it's a wild world. Tune in to Rep next time. I'm Noor Tajuri, as always, at your service. Rep is a production of At Your Service, School of Humans, and iHeart Podcasts. This show is written and produced by me, Noor Tajuri, and Zarin Burnett. Editing, production, sound design, and scoring by Josh Fisher. Theme song written and composed by Maimuna Youssef, a.k.a. Mumu Fresh. Our senior producer is Amelia Brock. Our associate producers are Tyler Donahue and Betsy Cardenas. Mix and master by Bahid Frazier. Audio assembly by Mary Dew. Fact-checking by Marissa Brown. Research consulting by Maithel Hassan. Our executive producers are Adam Khafif, Zarin Burnett, Jason English, and me, Noor Tajuri. 
Special thanks to Virginia Prescott from School of Humans and Will Pearson from iHeart Podcasts. I'd also like to thank Kat Stevens and Yusuf Hassan, Yuna, Minhal Beg, and May Kalamawi, Erij Mikati, and Kasha Sheikh. If this podcast resonated with you and you'd like to support our show, rate and review, share it with someone you think may enjoy it. Tune in to Rep next time. I'm Nurta Judy, as always, at your service. Rep.